you remember last time that we were in Colossians, which was hard to believe, four months ago, um, we started wading out into deeper water. So Paul had finished with his greeting. He had already talked about the preeminence of Christ. Uh, He talked about his ministry to the church. Uh, and now we're getting into some, some deeper water. He's talking about being alive in Christ is kind of the overarching theme um, in these verses this week. But he also instructed believers in verse 8 to see to it that no one would take you captive by philosophy, uh, particularly deceptive philosophy. Uh, and so we took some time to unpack that verse in the, the verses 8 through 10. And we saw that he was focused on deceptive philosophy when there's three characteristics that we noted. That was empty deceit, human traditions, and elemental spirits or the basic principles of this world. And then Paul emphasized and made sure to emphasize that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And we know that because he wrote, In Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And he went on to say that we as believers have been filled in Christ uh, as well. And if you remember from back four months ago, I used an illustration where uh, we've taken a jar and putting it into the ocean and we noted that the ocean just immediately fills that jar up. And we mentioned that Christ is infinite and as, as such that he can hold all the fullness of deity. And so when one of us, one of you or I as believers, when we dip our finite jar, if you will, into Christ, uh, it instantly is full of his fullness. We also noted that our souls are elastic, so they can, they can stretch and they can hold more and more of Christ as we dip ourselves continually into Him. Uh, in other words, we're in God's Word and we're studying and we're learning more about how to be like Christ. Now in our text this morning, Paul begins talking about the believer's identity. And he uses two metaphors to show us how we have our identity in Christ. The first one is circumcision, which is what we're going to discuss this morning. And the second one, which we'll talk about next week, is baptism. And so both of these metaphors will illustrate for us how we find our identity in Christ. Now it's important for us as believers to understand who we are in Christ. And if you remember... I mentioned that the phrase in Christ is something that we see repeated several times in the book of Colossians, but in chapter 2 alone it's repeated 10 times. So this morning we're going to unpack, or begin to unpack, uh, verse 11, and it's a, it's a deep doctrinal theological subject. There's multiple ways in which we can approach it, but the way I want to uh, come at it this morning, or our goal this morning, is to focus on how it relates to the gospel and our identity in Christ. So before we jump in and we consider uh, this first metaphor, let's stand together as I read uh, in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to pick up in verse 6, so I'm going to go backwards a little bit so we can have some context this morning. So picking up in verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead this is the word of the Lord you may be seated So our text verse this morning is verse 11. So let me just go ahead and read that one more time. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So the first thing we notice right out of the gate is the first two words. In him. And they're very important for us to stop and talk about. Because when we think about our identity, it has to be found in something. Well, our identity is found in Christ or in Him. Now, there's different ways that we will describe ourselves to people. You know, we want to talk about our jobs. We'll talk about what we like, what we don't like. We might even talk about our political affiliation, whatever. But, you know, all of those things that describe us, they're just characteristics. They're not our identity. Our identity, physically speaking, is only truly known by those things that cannot change. For example, DNA. Your DNA is your DNA. It is what it is. Uh, We have unique identifiers such as our fingerprints and our footprints. Well, spiritually speaking, Prior to Christ, our identity was that of a dead man. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, in the first three verses. But when a person comes to faith in Christ, he is made alive. And so now our identity is found solely in Christ and in him alone. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the old man, the dead fleshly man, has been removed. It's passed away. And the new man that's alive spiritually through Christ has come. So we have a new identity as believers. And it's only found in Christ. It's not found anywhere else. If you go looking for your identity in some place other than Christ, you're, you're not going to find it. You may think you do, but you're going to find that it just doesn't satisfy you. It leaves you empty. Only Christ can satisfy us and fill a person. And so Paul doesn't just stop at, in him. He keep, continues on with, You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, when we hear the word circumcision, most of us probably think mainly of a medical procedure that, is, that takes place. Uh, we, physically speaking, we know it's the cutting off of the foreskin. 
Um, and it's most often done on the eighth day of a boy's life. Uh, but in our modern times, at least here in the West, it's more for health benefits than it is for religious purposes. Although, in the Orient, and Egypt, and other places, it is very much a religious rite that they do. So the first account we read of circumcision in, in Scripture is back in Genesis chapter 17. And this is where God has come to Abraham, or Abram at the time. He changes his name to Abraham here. And he's going to establish his covenant with him. Uh, we don't have time to read all 14 verses. So picking up in verse 10, we read, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male, throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So in this account, God is establishing his covenant with Abraham. And the sign that God chooses is the sign of physical circumcision. In fact, God commanded Abraham to circumcise all the males in his household. Not just his immediate family, but every male in his household, including the foreigners that had become part of his household. So Abraham did exactly as God instructed. And he circumcised all the males of his household that very day. So we notice Abraham did not waste any time. He immediately responded to God's command. In Genesis 17, 14, the last verse we read, it provides an indication of the significance of circumcision. When we read, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So if a male refused to be circumcised, then that male would be cut off. He would be outside the covenant people of God. Now hold on to that phrase, cut off, because it is very important and we're going to come back to it. But for now, I want to stress that circumcision was an outward sign of there being a member of the covenant people of God. In verse 12, God instructs Abraham that all male children were to be circumcised on the eighth day going forward. And the reason for this is so the covenant would be extended to the next generation and subsequent generations thereafter. But we also notice too that there is no distinction between those who were born in Abraham's house or those who he had acquired through money. And this observation is also important because it's the first clue that circumcision was a physical demonstration of a greater spiritual reality and not about racial purity or social status. It was for all who would be part of the covenant people of God. So, yes, the Israelites are God's chosen people. 
But even within the Abrahamic covenant, God was still providing a way for Gentiles to identify with the covenant people of God. And this is true of salvation through faith in Christ today. It's not reserved for a specific race. It's available to anyone who will put their faith and trust in Christ. So if we look back now to Colossians chapter 2 and our text passage, we see that Paul is using circumcision as a metaphor. And he's using this graphic image to illustrate that circumcision, that the circumcision without hands that we read of in verse 11 is what's important. In other words, the spiritual circumcision of the heart. As you read through the New Testament, we see and learn how the Pharisees and other false teachers turned physical circumcision into something that was never intended by God. They made it into a, a work that was required to get to God. They failed to understand that physical circumcision was only the outward sign of what had already previously taken place within a person's heart by faith. On the cross, Christ did away with the Old Covenant through His blood. He entered the heavenly tabernacle with His own blood. See Hebrews 9, 11-14. And satisfying the requirements, He made a way for all those who would believe on Him to be saved, to be, as it were, a member of the covenant people of God. In Paul's letter to Romans, he made it very clear that physical circumcision was not the deciding work that made an individual a member of the covenant people of God. We see in uh, chapter 9, verse 6, For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, just because a person was or is a direct descendant of Abraham into the Jewish nation, it did not give them a free pass to salvation. If physical circumcision is to be the decisive requirement for salvation, then you and I have a problem. Earlier in Paul's letter to Romans, he states clearly what is required for physical circumcision to be effective for salvation. And I want you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 2. And we'll pick up in verse 25. And I want you to follow along as I read it carefully. Uh, and I will also add some emphasis along the way to hopefully provide some clarity. But it's Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. For circumcision, that is physical circumcision, indeed is of value if you obey the law, and that is perfectly obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision, the physical circumcision, becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, that is perfectly, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law perfectly will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart 
by the Spirit, not by the letter, that is the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. So in our text passage, Paul is making it clear that spiritual circumcision is what is important, not the physical act. And this is also supported in Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 6. Now earlier I mentioned to keep that phrase cut off in your mind. And uh, we're coming back to that now because we need to ask ourselves a question. Why did God choose physical circumcision as the sign of the covenant and what does it symbolize? The physical cutting off of the foreskin pictures God's judgment on our fleshly and carnal nature. And that nature was set aside. It was separated. It was deemed dead. So in other words, circumcision was the outward demonstration that mankind was born sinful and needs to be cleansed. It's a very graphic way to demonstrate that all people need cleansing at our deepest levels of our being. John MacArthur puts it this way, quote, No other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin inasmuch as that is the part of man that produces life, and all that he produces is sinful. The sin nature is passed down through the seed of man. Thus, all mankind are born dead in their trespasses and sins. Again, I refer you back to Ephesians chapter 2. Physical circumcision is used to symbolically illustrate that desperate spiritual need that we have, both Jew and Gentiles alike, for the cleansing of our hearts. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses was commanding the Israelites that they needed to circumcise their heart and no longer stiffen their necks. And he would go on in chapter 30, verse 6, and say, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God commanded the Israelites to, quote, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Jeremiah 4.4 4. So as we can see from these examples, God's primary concern from the very beginning was the heart, not a physical ritual. Abraham was commanded to be circumcised, but it was the outward sign of what had already taken place in Abraham's heart. Or Abram's, technically at that point. Abram's heart had already been made righteous. It wasn't the other way around. And we know this because Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 tells us, And he, meaning Abram, believed the Lord, and he, meaning God, counted it to him as righteousness. So for believers today, the ritual of physical circumcision isn't necessary. Because we have believed by faith on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. We've experienced the spiritual circumcision of our hearts. And this is what Paul is saying when he wrote here in verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Christ has completed in the believer's heart what we could never 
have ever done on our own. So what we see here is that the object of circumcision is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is able to put off the body of flesh. And so there's very much significance in this phrase, putting off the body of flesh. As I just mentioned, Christ is the object of circumcision. And Christ's death on the cross is what is the image that Paul has in mind with this phrase. Consider what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake he made himself to be he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Christ was beaten and crucified, he bore the full weight of sin. He experienced the full measure of God's wrath and judgment for sin. And because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he was able to bear that full judgment of sin in his body. And by doing so, for those who would believe on him, he has put off the body of flesh. Now in your bulletin on the right hand side, I have this quote that I'm about to read listed there, so if you want to follow along as I read because H.A. Ironside really helps us to understand this. Notice what he said, quote, circumcision was the cutting off of the flesh physically and it was given by God to picture the judgment of the carnal nature and its complete setting aside. This is what God has done in the cross of Christ. In his cutting off by death, when he stood vicariously in our place, we see the end of the flesh as viewed from the divine standpoint. It is cut off, it is put to one side, as absolutely worthless. The flesh, we read, profiteth nothing. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Pay attention here. Therefore, God is making no attempt to improve it. Consequently, there is no place for merit so far as man is concerned. He has none, and blessed be God, he needs none. All merit is in another. Well, there's another important consideration that we see in the phrase, the body of flesh. We know from what we just learned that it refers to our fallen and sinful nature. And before a believer comes to Christ, they're dominated by this inherent sinful nature. But now, because of Christ, we are a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6 verse 6 that at salvation our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And in Philippians 3.3 expresses this same thought just a little bit differently. He said, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh. One commentator wrote, quote, believers have been freed from sin's dominance and judgment, though not yet from its presence. Unquote. But this begs a question. 
If we have been freed from sin's grasp, why do believers still sin? If circumcision of the heart has removed sin's dominance and judgment, why do we as Christians continue to wrestle with the very sinful nature that we have been delivered from? Have any of y'all ever thought about that? I know I have. Well, Paul, in Romans 7, has an answer to this question. And this is what we read, beginning in verse 15. It's a familiar passage. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I had the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, praise the Lord, Paul didn't stop there. He kept going. And he said, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the, law, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So this passage highlights very clearly that the believer's new disposition wants and desires to live according to the new nature, but we still live in these unredeemed fleshly bodies. Our fleshly nature is still subject to the temptation from all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, 1 John 2.16. Paul is showing us that the war that is waging within the believer is, is real. We desire to do what is right, but we do the very thing we hate. Paul highlights the very real struggle that is taking place within himself and within all believers. The struggle is real. And if you truly desire to live godly lives... The war that's going to take place inside of you is going to be fierce. And we have to fight it with everything we have to resist sin. The new creation is pure and holy. And as believers, we are looking forward to the redemption of these bodies. But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8.23. So at the second coming of Christ, we're going to receive new bodies, glorified bodies, those bodies that are fit for glory. Praise the Lord. 
Because one day, we are going to be perfectly fit for heaven when Christ completes in us what he had begun in us when we first believed. So in conclusion, I have one final observation I want to make regarding the phrase, putting off the body of flesh. R. Kent Hughes' take on verse 11 is that circumcision is a, quote, gruesome metaphor for the crucifixion, unquote. He goes on to explain that circumcision didn't involve the stripping away of a small piece of flesh, but rather the violent removal of Christ's entire body in death. The Colossian believers and all believers now in him share in this same death. Our sinful nature has been cut off and stripped away and now we have died to our former way of life. There's a note in the ESV study Bible that's worth mentioning. It says this, In this circumcision performed by Christ, Christians have been removed from their solidarity with Adam and his sin and are now in solidarity with Christ and his righteousness and can live for him as they could not before. So as I mentioned, the title of our message this morning is Identified with Christ. And as I thought about Hughes' take on verse 11, and I thought about the ESV's comment I just read, it reminded me of a change that has taken place here in America as it regards commercial flights. If you want to board an airplane and fly anywhere within the continental United States, or even abroad for that matters, you need to have what is called a real ID. Basically what happens is you schedule an appointment with the Division of Driver's License, you go there, you provide a whole bunch of personal information, they're going to run a background check, and I mean this is all happening while you're standing there, and when that background check comes back and they've confirmed your identity, then they're going to reissue you a driver's license, and the only difference in that driver's license is there's going to be a star that is on that driver's license. And that star indicates to TSA or whoever for that matters that you have verified your identity and that the government has verified your, your identity. So your, that license with the star now says that you are who you say you are. Well, in other words, your true identity, identity has been verified. But let me ask you, what is your true identity? Are you identified with the old Adam in your sinful, lost state? Or have you come to Christ through faith and received your new identity in Christ? If you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, then you are identified with Christ. Now I know this has been a very theological heavy message this morning. So I want to close with a, a, a story that's taken from a message by a gentleman, Rick Azell, titled The Mark of Distinct, Distinctiveness. He writes, in C.E. Montague's novel, Rough Justice, there's a memorable scene that describes this little boy, his name is Bron, and he's going to church for the first time with his governess. He's watching the service with interest, every part of it. And then the preacher climbs up into the high pulpit and 
Ron hears him tell some very terrible news. It's about a brave and kind man who was nailed to a cross. He was gravely injured and he died. And this happened a long time ago. And, and he feels that there's a dreadful pain now because there was something that's not done that he wants all to do. Well, little Bron thinks that the preacher is telling the story because there's a lot of people there and they're going to do something about it. And he's sitting there impatiently. He's on the edge of the pew. He can hardly wait for that first move that will be writing this injustice. But as he sits quietly, he realizes that no one's doing anything. And so he thinks, well, okay, after the service, somebody's going to do something about it. Well, the service is over. The people walk away as if they've not heard any terrible news. As if nothing remarkable had taken place. So as Bron leaves the church, he's trembling. His governess looks at him and says, Bron, don't take it to heart. Someone will think you're different. Folks, the cross demands us to be different. It ought to move us emotionally, yes. But more than that, it's a call to action. Our spiritual circumcision that was made without hands has removed and set aside the old dead flesh. Instead, it has given us new life. He's given us eternal life. This is a gift given to us by God. So our lives are now to be holy as He is holy. See 1 Peter 1, 3 and 13 and following. And this is what distinguishes us from the world. This is what makes us different. So I hope this morning that you have come to understand that circumcision carries with it a very deep spiritual meaning and that it is important for us to get a hold of. I know we haven't really scratched the surface of this deep truth this morning, but I hope we've gained a little better understanding of the importance of this great theological truth. Next week, we're going to examine verse 12 and, and following, which is on baptism. And that's the second metaphor that Paul is going to use to describe our identity in Christ. So we'll be examining what that means and why it's important for uh, us as believers to be baptized. So I hope you're able to join us next week as we conclude this little mini-series, if you will, on our identity in Christ. Let's pray.